0: I want you to open your Bibles this morning. First to the book of Galatians. We're just going to spend a couple of moments in Galatians and then we're going to move over to Hebrews. But in Galatians 6, um, there's an encouragement here that I think uh, it's well known to us believers. It's not a... It's not one of those odd scriptures that you never hear. It's something you you often do hear. In fact, I've even heard politicians quote it. Um, But it is something that sometimes the things we think we're familiar with, we're still not really hanging on to or or, or grasping in the way that I think God would want us to. Sometimes we think we know something so much that we hear it and we kind of let it go over our heads. We just kind of assume, well, I know that and I've been doing that. In Galatians 6, there's an encouragement. Um, First of all, in in verse 9, or sorry, verse 6, Galatians 6, 6, it says, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. Whatever he plants, this is what he's going to harvest. It's an interesting statement that he goes, don't be deceived, God's not mocked. Because I don't really think that we would ever think by not believing that we're mocking God. Or that by being deceived, I believe God could be mocked. But why, why does he say God is not mocked? Why, why is that even a statement? Of course God's not mocked. What does that mean to you? Does that mean like nobody can make fun of God? Does this, I mean, what does it literally mean? Does it mean that you can't put on your God voice and imitate God? What does it mean to say God is not mocked? It means to me that when he says something or he puts a law in motion, it's not gonna go any other way than the way he put it in emotion. It's not not gonna be different than what he said. So when he gives his word, he's gonna keep his word. And for him to not keep his word is a mockery of who he is. Can I just say, we all believe in the natural laws that God put in motion, don't we? You believe that if you put a seed in the ground, you water it, it gets sunlight, it's in a good environment, it will grow, right? We all believe that. You believe that because, you know, that's how we've survived as humans. We, we, we've put that into practice. Now, I know that that, you know... The, the farming community seems to be getting smaller and smaller and farms get bigger and there's less and less people doing it. So most of us in the room are not farmers and maybe you're a gardener, but we all get the concept, put something in the ground, it's going to grow and you get something from it. It's amazing how much in the Bible this comes out, right? This is, this is, this is throughout the scripture. And so when he says God is not mocked, we all believe in the natural sense that God has put natural laws in motion. Nobody's going to walk out the door today and and say, I'm going to skip the steps. I'm going to take a jump and I will float to my car. (laughs) Nobody's going to try that. Why? Because we believe in the natural law of gravity. Right? Whether or not you can explain it, we believe in it. You know how many laws of nature we believe in and we have no idea how they work? But I believe in my, I believe, I believe in my car. My car, my, my car is, my vehicle is not a law, but I know that if I do certain things, it's going to work. I couldn't rebuild that car. I couldn't build it from scratch and say, well, let me just put, let me just put a vehicle together for you. Uh, I'll just get the right parts. I'll, put, I'll smack it together. I don't have that skill set, but I, I do know it will work. There's all sorts of these natural laws that we believe in. We put our trust in. And yet, somehow, when it comes to spiritual things, we think that's magic. Right? Like, that's just just magic. So, so... If I were to put seed in the ground and water it, it'll grow. But when it comes to spiritual things, we go, well, I guess if God wants to do it, he'll do it. And if he doesn't, he doesn't. And we'll see what happens. Quesarasara, whatever will be, will be. That's not really faith. That's fatalism. What you're believing is, I don't know, I have no part to play in this, but whatever will happen will happen. You've just basically adopted a philosophy that the pagans have had for a long time, which is that there's this God of fate. And whatever's going to happen is going to happen, so there it is. Rather than believing that there is a God and he is all-powerful, we believe this, right? He's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he could do anything. He overrules everything. He can break the laws of nature if he wants to, like when he split the Red Sea. So he has all the power because he created everything. He has power over creation. But can we agree that even though he has the power to supersede a law of nature or, or supersede those laws that he put into motion, can we agree that most of the time he works by those laws? So the Bible says he gives rain in its season. It says he gives the sun for the crops. He gives rain in its season. And you might say, well, science proves that the rain's going to come because of all this. Yeah, because God put that into motion. So why is it that we believe that in the natural world, but when it comes to spiritual things, we just kind of go, I don't know, it's magic. Rather than saying, hey, he just said spiritually, when I sow something, I will reap, I will harvest, because there's a spiritual law in motion. Why, why don't I believe that what God has promised, he will keep, and, and that everything he does through Jesus is a work of grace, but... In order to step into that work of grace, I need faith. Because the Bible says that's exactly how it works. We're saved by grace through faith. Is it, is it okay to say that without that faith, it's impossible to please God? Yeah, it's okay to say that because God said that. When I believe these things, sometimes we say, okay, well, you know, I believe that whatever a man's going to sow, he's going to reap. But in reality, it's just going to turn out like it's going to turn out. You're making a mockery of God. He said, this is the way it works. In fact, you, you might say, well, God's ways, God's nature is revealed through nature. God's character is revealed through nature. That's what it says in Romans 1. It says we can look around at creation and get a picture, not just of God's greatness or his ability, but his character. The paradox is that we live in a broken world, so there are elements of our creation around us that does not reflect God. give you an example. Entropy, right? The whole planet is in entropy. It's, It's going to a state of chaos. If you leave something alone, it doesn't get better. It gets worse right? That's, that's called entropy. That's why we were put on the planet to subdue, right? To, we're put in a garden to make things better. It, it, this, is, this is the nature of God. We know that the world is broken. It's under a curse, yet God is not under a curse. So when we look around, we still see things that are broken that don't reflect God, but there are certain things that still reflect God. Sowing and reaping, planting and harvesting was around before there was any sin in the planet, You remember this, right? God put Adam in the garden. God put Adam in the garden, told him to take care of it. And that was before there was any sin. Some of us are so afraid of work that we forget that work was around before there was any problems. Work was good. God created you for it. The difference was when the curse came, thorns came. When the curse came, God said it's going to be hard to get something out of this ground. He didn't say, I mean, it was always going to be work, but the work was good, right? You know, you see, God rested on the seventh day. He wouldn't have rested if there wasn't work. It doesn't mean he was tired either, right? The fact that he rested doesn't mean he was worn out. And that's another thing. That's another thing for another time. But there are laws that he's put into motion. And when we see this, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. We need to read what comes after that. In verse 8, he says this, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You notice that when we're talking about the one who sows, we're talking about continual action. A farmer doesn't just plant one seed in his lifetime. Right? This is a process. This is his lifestyle is to plant, to harvest, to plant, to harvest. So he's not just talking about that one time I did that thing. He's talking about continually. Then he says this, the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap or we will have a harvest if we don't grow weary. Don't the scriptures that have an if in them bug you a bit? Do you know why? Because the if is the part where I come in. You see, God's law is is settled. But he puts an if there. This is not going to happen without you doing what you're supposed to do here. And what's your part to play here? What does he say? Don't grow weary. I don't think we need to read more into this than, than is there. You will reap a harvest. He doesn't say you'll reap a harvest if you did a really good job. He says that you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up, if you don't grow weary. We've been talking about victory. We talked about permission, right? What do I have permission to ask for? We talked about that, that sense of, um, <laughs> I mean, well, before even before that, we, we talked, to, you know, we're talking about Victory in the sense of persuasion. So I'm persuaded that, that what God said he will do. Then we talked about permission, whatever right to ask for. And now we're going to talk about persistence. We're going to talk about perseverance. We're going to talk about patience. There's a lot of Ps here. That's cool. <laughs> the key for me to harvest is not just the seed. Although that's a big part of it, Right? the key for me to harvest is to not grow weary. You know, Jesus said that the harvest was plentiful. And then he said, let's pray that the Lord would send labors into the field. And he goes on, and, he, and after he gets them to pray for labors in the field, he actually sends them into the field. And says, okay, you go. Go to the villages and go, go do this. But what's interesting to me is, and he uses the example, he says, so... In another place, he talks about a harvest. He says, when there's a harvest, he says, you plant the seed, then there's a harvest. The harvest comes, and then you thrust forth the sickle, and you go get the harvest. We think, many times as Christians, we think the end of the equation is, the the first part is the planting. The other part is the watering and the sunshine or whatever. But the end of the story is the harvest. But the harvest is not the end of the story. Just because there's a harvest in the field doesn't mean there's a harvest in your barn. The difference is you went and got it, right? So Jesus says, and in fact, God says here in Galatians 6, when you sow, there will be a harvest. The question is not whether or not the seed will turn into something. The question is, is whether you will harvest it. You know, Jesus was walking in a field that he said someone else planted. And he says, it's okay. We're walking in a field, someone else planted, and we're stepping into another man's labor. We're harvesting another man's harvest. Presumably because somebody else didn't harvest that. Now that, that that section of scripture always puzzles me because I don't know who could sow something that Jesus could say, that was good. I'll take that. I kind of see it as Jesus was like presenting a whole new thing. But apparently somebody had done some work that Jesus stepped into. And we know that that's in the body, that's okay. There's times where it says, Paul says, one planted, another watered, but God gave the growth, we harvested. It's, we work together in this. But when we're standing, and, and what's his point? He says, don't grow weary in doing good. Think about what doing good means. What does doing good mean to you? You know, so often we think doing good, I, I was good. We go back to our childhood and we just say, I was good, means I wasn't bad right? <laughs> How are you? Jonathan, we left you with the, we left you with the family in the church. How were you? I was good. I was good. I was good. I'm not necessarily saying I did anything. I just didn't do anything bad that they caught me doing, <laughs> right? So I, I, I was good. But when you talk about doing good, we got to get out of this mindset as Christians that doing good is just avoiding bad because that is a paralyzing way to live. You're not doing anything, And I've said this over and over again, but, you know, Peter says, "You, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. He doesn't say, you know about Jesus, how he went about avoiding sin at all costs, never doing anything bad for God was with him. That's not what he says about Jesus. Did Jesus sin at all? No, he was perfect. But what really spoke about him was not that he avoided the bad stuff, but what, what really spoke of him, what the, the testimony of Jesus, was that he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. What's going to speak about your life when we stand up here and, and someday if I outlive you and Jesus it, it waits to come back, then at your funeral I would hope that I'm not going to just get to stand up here and say, you know, I can't remember anything bad that this person did. I can't remember anything they did, to be honest. I think they just kind of were a nice little potato that lived their life. Peter said, you know how Jesus did good. So what is doing good? I think that's putting your hand to whatever God told you to put your hand to. That is carrying out the work and the will of God. Jesus said, my bread, my food, is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's what feeds me. That's what excites me. That's what gives me life. That's what energizes me is to do his will. And here we're, we're talking about not growing weary in doing God's will. Not growing weary in, in, the, in the work of what God's put us to. It's important to understand that when I'm talking about the work, I'm not stepping back into an old covenant under the law way of talking about work. I'm talking about it like Paul said in 1 Corinthians where he says, you know, God's grace toward me was not in vain for I worked harder than anyone else but it wasn't me working, it was the grace of God working with me. It's working out the salvation within you with such reverence and respect that he says with fear and trembling. The question's not whether you did it. The question is, did you grow weary? I wonder, because there's an if here, I'm gonna go ahead and say this, that there are people that planted... Watered and waited and never saw a harvest. And they went home thinking, God let me down. Or I somehow missed it. Where the if here is not, if God decides to give you a harvest. The if here is, if you don't grow weary. Right? Maybe we're so fast food that if we don't get it right away, we think we missed it. As opposed to putting your hand to the plow and not giving up until you see the result of what God put you there to do. Amen. We talked about Simeon at Christmas time. Here's a man who's been waiting all his life to see salvation, and it's literally the last thing he sees before he dies. That's faith. That's endurance. I want to um, have you turn to Hebrews. And we're going to go to chapter 6. Last couple of weeks, it just seems like we go to the same number in the books. But in Hebrews 6, you know, <clears throat> has anyone here read the book of Hebrews through, through? You read the whole thing? Studied the whole thing? I would encourage you to do that. It's one of the best letters for just reading start to finish. It's a long one. But it it keeps referring back to itself. It it builds on itself so many times that if you're really going to understand one chapter, you kind of got to read them all. Not saying you can't get something out of this, but it really helps for you to get the theme that he's pushing here. And and there is a consistent theme throughout Hebrews, which number one, he's getting people that are on the fence to make a decision. He says, if if you neglect this sacrifice, there's not another one. But then the major theme that keeps coming up is telling them, don't give up. Don't give up. He talks about the fact that they're under some pressure. They're under some affliction. They're under some persecution by the people around them. He says, don't give up. Don't let go of what you've been given. He says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart like your fathers did. He says, have faith. Stand there. Believe God. And in fact, another word that pops up over and over and over again is the word encouragement. Too often, we forget my part to play. You See, I just said, we'll reap a harvest if we don't grow weary. And so many times, we'll take a verse like that and say, well, that's why you didn't reap a harvest. You grew weary. You gave up. But you know, the scripture doesn't just leave it to you. It leaves it to me to say, is that person faint-hearted? Encourage the faint-hearted. It tells us to meet together more and more as we see the day of the Lord approaching. Not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. And then it says, but keep on encouraging one another. More and more. Day after day. See, I have a part to play in you staying true to what God's called you to do. I have a part to play. It's ultimately not my responsibility. It's, 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 there's a big responsibility on you. But I've got a part to play because I'm your brother. And if I notice that you're getting faint-hearted, if I see that you're, you're about to give up, it falls to me to say, hey, I can encourage you in the Lord. Hey, I can say something to you that's going to say, don't give up, don't grow weary. You will reap a harvest if you don't grow weary. I love statements like that because there's no loopholes in it. Right? We're always looking for a loophole. God, give me a way out of believing that you're going to, be, you're going to come through. And it, doesn't, it sounds weird that somebody would say that, but I, I have friends that say things like that. They don't say it in those words, but we could be reading a story of every miracle in the Bible and their comment on that story would be, yeah, but what, what about when it doesn't happen? Every single time we read it. And I get it. We've walked through life. We've, we've sometimes expected one thing and seen another but we can't live life just saying, you know what, I give up. I, I, I just, I used to believe like that, but it was too hard because I was constantly having to hold on to something that I couldn't see. I want to be a person that believes more when I'm 90 than I did when I was 15. Amen. And when I'm 90, I will have seen some thing, I will have experienced some things that I thought should turn one way and they turned another way. But I believe this, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And it will keep me from fainting. And I believe this, I will see the faithfulness of God. It says this in Hebrews 6, verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced. We are convinced. Is there room in our theology to be convinced? Is there room in our understanding of God to be convinced? See, the problem with being convinced is you put yourself out there. Right? It's why, it's why the Canadian way to look at politics is to say they're all crooks. I don't believe any of them. Why? It's safe. When you say something like that, then you don't have to put yourself out there. Then everybody in Tim Hortons will go, "Yep." The safest thing to do is say is be cynical about stuff because you're never putting yourself on the line. When you say, I'm convinced God's going to come through, you put yourself out there. You're putting yourself in a position where you're saying, I'm going to look dumb if he doesn't. Now, I understand there's times where we speak for God when he didn't say that, right? <laughs> there was one lady a long time ago. I remember she said to my parents, she said, you know, she was pregnant. She was very close to having that baby. She said, well, we're, we're praying that it's going to be a girl. And you see, my dad always, always get this little smirk in his face that he tried to hide. Because I don't think God's going to do a sex change in the next five minutes. <laughs> Whatever this baby is, it is right now. So she's going around telling everybody it's going to be a girl. It's going to be a girl. Well, it turns out it was a boy. So who failed? God didn't fail. But she, she was presumptuous, right? So I understand that sometimes we do that, and then God gets, gets the mud that we threw at him, but thank God mud doesn't stick to God. He's, he's bigger than that. But there are times where he has said, I will do this. Yeah. Can I ask you, are you assured that you have eternal life? Yes. Are you sure, though? Yes. You're, you're positive about this? Yes. Mm, yes. Sure about this? Yes. You're going to look real stupid when you die <laughs> if you're wrong. <laughs> You've put yourself in a position where you will swear up and down that you're saved because God said it. So I believe it. There's no backing me down on this. Can't go, back. can't go back. Exactly. Now, the only issue with us Christians is that's the only thing sometimes we feel safe in saying we're sure about. We're talking to Loon Lake about how God said in Isaiah, you know, Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus on the cross. Isaiah 54 starts with shout for joy. On the other side of the cross, there's joy. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And on Isaiah 54, it talks about a post-redeemer reality. And he says this, he says, this is like the days of Noah to me in which I swore that there will never be a flood. I'll never flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. Mm. Easier to believe that they'll never, he'll never flood the earth again than that he won't be angry with us again because we have a rainbow. But he says, It's the same to me. He says, My covenant, he says, If the mountains fell into the sea, If the whole earth crumbled, my covenant of peace with you would not be shaken. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? That because of Jesus, the wrath of God has been taken. I will not face that judgment that Jesus took on the cross. He says this in, in chapter 6, we're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. So we're talking about more than just salvation. Ooh, we're stepping into some risky ground here, more than just salvation. Things that accompany salvation. Though we are speaking in this way in verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work. And the love which you've shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Do you hear this? So the full assurance of hope depends on this diligence. Doesn't mean you won't get something, but if you want to grab onto the full assurance of what God's already put in motion for you, there's going to have to be diligence. In fact, that Greek word diligence has hidden in it the word for hurry. I think the best way we could translate it in modern vernacular is hustle. We desire that each one of you show the same hustle. Like that you're not just sitting back waiting for something to happen that, that hope has stirred something in me. Faith has stirred something in me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna move because he's put something in me. He says, the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. In verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. Notice that word surely. It's very important. I will surely bless you. Now here's a question. Does God need to say surely? Like if he said, I will bless you and I will multiply you, does he have to say surely in front of that? Because his word is always true. He set it for Abraham's benefit. And he like gave him little things to look at. He said, Abraham, when it's nighttime, go look. Look at the stars. Can you count them? I can't count them. One, two. So stop trying, Abraham. It was, a, it, was a, it was a question you can't answer. Of course you can't count them. No, Lord, I can't count them. So will your descendants be. But, but Lord, what about when it's daytime? I can't see the stars. Okay, Abraham, look at the sand. Oh, Okay. No matter what time of day, I got something to look at. Stars, sand, stars, sand. Don't mix them up. Don't mix them up. Nighttime, stars. Daytime, sand. Abraham, I will surely bless you. Abraham, I will surely multiply you. See, God put that surely there for his benefit. Because, I mean, if you look at the Israelites, how many times those Israelites coming out of Egypt... It says in the, in the wilderness, God tested them. Now, often we think that testing means he was trying to see what we're made of. But don't you know God already knows what you're made of? Yeah. The, the, the thing was, it wasn't a test, really, of God finding out something. It was them relearning how to think about God. So one of the first things they come out of Egypt, because who have they been looking for for their food and water? The Egyptians, their masters. When God brings them out of the wilderness, there's no water. So he says, well, come to the rock, and Moses is going to, you know, he's going to strike this rock. Water's going to come out of it. Oh, okay. So water comes out of the rock. Their, their you know, their, their, their thirst is quenched. Then he brings them into a different thing, thing after another, bitter water. And he puts a tree, finds a specific tree, which is so relevant when we think about the cross. He puts it in the water and the bitter water, the poison water, becomes drinkable. He brings them to all these things and he proves to them, look, this is who I am. And still at the end of it, they don't really believe it. Th- their biggest problem is not that they, they, they believe God is all powerful. They just don't believe God is trustworthy. And I think if we were to really ask the question, ask every believer on the planet, do you believe God is powerful? They all would say yes. Do you say, is there anything impossible for God? They would all say no. And then if you ask them, do you see this scripture? Do you believe God's going to do that for you? They go, I don't know. We don't question his power. We question his faithfulness. And we use words like, well, he can do whatever he wants. He's God. He's God. When he says, I'm not going to be mocked. And Paul, or sorry, the writer of Hebrews, whoever that is, says, He's not unjust. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. Verse 15. And so, having patiently waited, you hear that? Patiently waited, he obtained the promise. He grabbed onto the promise. You know, I believe there's a difference between patiently waiting and waiting with an attitude of I don't know what's going to happen and it'll just happen like it's going to happen. Waiting in faith, waiting in true patience is different. Because that kind of waiting is you standing in the place that God told you to stand. You keep doing what God told you to do until you see the outcome of it. There's a waiting that just says I'm tired of pressing. I'm tired of sowing. I'm tired of, of doing what I was doing because I don't see the results. I'm just going to see what happens. That's not the waiting he's talking about. In fact, he says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. See, we've talked about that idea of victory through the, through the eyes of faith. Faith is active, isn't it? Faith produces action. Hebrews 11, by faith they did. By faith they did. By faith they did. Faith will cause you to act. Hope will cause you to endure. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He said this. He said, I know, and everyone's heard of this, of your work of faith, of your labor of love, And of your steadfastness of hope. See, he told us the outcome of each one of those fruits of the Spirit. The outcome of faith is action, work of faith. The outcome of love is is, is labor. In other words, it will cause you to do things for people you never would do. It will cause you to do things for God that you never would have thought of doing. Because you love, you'll do it. The outcome of hope is steadfastness. I would think this is the one thing we need more than ever in these last days is hope. It's the most, one of the most valuable things we have. Maybe you're sitting here going, I don't know what the difference between faith and hope is. Kind of use them interchangeably. Anybody brave enough to admit you just faith and hope kind of just <laughs> wear the, wear this, you know, they wear each other's clothes sometimes. You don't know which is which. They're like those twins that you're like, huh? <laughs> Let's just, hey, buddy, hey, pal, hey, amigo. So I really don't know which one this is. Someone says, well, he's the, he's the quick-witted one. How am I supposed to find that out? Yeah. Sometimes it's like that with faith and hope. Ah, faith, hope, sort of the same thing. They're slightly different, yet they are very close. And the reason that they're sort of the same is because they work together, right? Faith is the Evidence of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. So faith can't work without hope. And hope naturally needs faith. Faith is, 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 is that, you know, James says, without work, faith without works is dead. So faith always has that action. Faith is hanging on to something God said. Faith is acting on his promises. Faith is acting on his word. Faith is something that, you, you know, you're, you're moving. Even when you're standing still, you're moving. You're, you're actively holding on to something. But hope... Well, faith is, is often is anchored in what God said. Faith comes by hearing the word, right? So what God has said, I have faith in that. But hope goes even deeper because faith, you, believe, you have faith in God, you have faith in his word, but hope anchors you to the very character and nature of God. You say, I know because he's good. I, I, I don't know everything, but I know he is good. Therefore, I hope in him. I know he never fails. I know he's faithful. Therefore, I hope in him. And the reason we give up is because we lose heart. And the reason we lose heart is because we've lost hope. Scripture says hope deferred makes the heart sick. What is hope deferred? It means that you put your hope in something and you were disappointed. We've talked about this, but the Israelites, the Bible says they were discouraged because of the way. You know, God brought them to the promised land. you know what discouraged them? The way they got there. Often, we're discouraged and we're disappointed in God, not because he let us down, but because we drew the picture of how he was going to do it. And when he didn't do it like we thought he was going to do it, we're disappointed. To be disappointed means you lost hope. Your hope was let down. And the fact is, the Bible says, whoever hopes in him will not be disappointed. But the problem is, most of the time, we haven't hoped in him. We've hoped in a specific story that we've played out in our heads, this is how he's going to do it. When he didn't do it that way, we're disappointed. When he didn't do it in that time period, we're disappointed. So our heart is sick, so we lose hope, we lose heart. When we lose heart, we give up. And when we give up, we lose the promise. imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Can you extrapolate from that? That without faith and patience, you won't inherit the promises of God? Right? Now, he says promises plural. So we're not just talking. You know, someone might say, well, he's, he's talking about salvation. Salvation is a huge theme in this chapter. But he's talking about more than that because he said things that accompany salvation. And he goes on and he says, inherit the promises. There are things that God's promised to you. And I'm going to tell you, whether or not you inherit them is not whether or not he decides he wants you. Because if he's promised it, it's a promise. The question is, will you grab onto it by faith? And will you keep holding on even when it becomes uncomfortable to hang on? Awkward? Maybe a little embarrassing to keep hanging on to this? How many times did God use barren women in the Bible to bring great redeemers, right? I mean, like he just seemed to relish this. And you got to think how hard that would have been in that culture for you to be a woman that can't have a child. In our culture, it's, 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 it's not easy, but there's not the same shame that was put on them then. It was like their whole value was on the kids that they produced. Can you imagine them saying, God, you said, I got, I know, but I'm not seeing it, how hard that is. How you have to live with that. How it would have been much easier for Abraham to just stop believing. We think the hard thing is living with a reality where God's not going to come through. I think the hard thing, the hard thing is hanging on to the belief that God will come through when it doesn't look like it. Faith and patience. You know, that word patience there literally translates as long suffering. All right. Nobody likes the S word, especially when you put long in front of it. I can deal with short suffering. Lord knows you women can. You willingly let people wax your legs or something. I mean, that that's, that's short suffering, I would imagine, but long suffering? Long suffering. Why are you suffering long? You're hanging on to something. To suffer in the scripture doesn't mean just to experience pain. It really is an improper translation of it. Because Paul says to Timothy, he says, suffer hardship as a good soldier. What does he mean? Keep going. Keep fighting even when it's uncomfortable. Even when you're in the muddy trenches. Even when someone's shooting back at you, you keep fighting. Even when you say, oh, I'd rather be at home on the couch, you keep fighting. That's long-suffering. Long-suffering. Long-suffering is hanging on when it would be the easiest thing in the world to let go. Through faith and patience, you inherit the promise. Faith, that's that move. Come on, come on, move. Let's go get it. But that patience is there are moments where I'm going to keep standing. I'm going to keep moving forward. Even when it seems like it's not happening in my timeline, I'm going to inherit this promise. I'm not giving up. I'm not growing weary. I'm not letting go of my hope. Not letting go of him. And he goes on and he says this. We're going to finish this thought. Finish it. He says, this hope. Sorry, I I skipped some things. He says, for men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them an oath is given as confirmation as an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the errors of his promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose. He interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, listen to that, unchangeable. What's unchangeable? He's unchangeable and his word's unchangeable. In which it is impossible for God to lie. We need to believe that more than we believe most things. All things are possible, but it is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong, there's that word again, encouragement to take hold of the hope set before you. Take hold of the hope. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is the, the first application of this is to our own belief that by his blood I'm sanctified, that I'm saved through Jesus Christ. But that same spiritual law applies throughout everything you're gonna hold on to. When we hang on to the promises of God, you've got to take hold of that hope. Greatest threat to you inheriting the promises, the greatest threat to us not seeing the victory we believe for not what we think the threats are. We think the threat's the enemy, but the enemy has no power over God's word. We think the threat is this circumstance or that, but that's not really a threat. The threat is that you would give up. The threat is that you would grow weary in well-doing and therefore not see the harvest. You ever been driving to somebody's house, they gave you direction? I mean, a lot of people in this church live in rural areas, and when I've come to your house, I've always second, third, fourth guessed myself. <laughs> You're like, go until you see that water tower. I have not seen a water tower, but I should have seen a water tower. (laughs) Tia's my encourager. Keep going, keep going. I didn't see it either. Oh, I think we need to turn around. How many of us, there's been times I turned around right before the turnoff. (laughs) Because I'm worried I made a mistake. I think we pray for things. We hold on tight to things and we turn around right before the turnoff. Right before the turnoff. In fact, you know, that it is a, usually the way things go, that the point of really hanging to, having to hang on the hardest, the darkest point is right before the dawn. Right, yes. Probably the point where you are most tested to hang on is right before you see the promise. Right? right. It's right before. I want to read you one more thing before we close. It's something that Jesus said. You ever read the Gospels and just, Sort of got bugged by it. If not, I don't know who you are. (laughs) Whether you're taking him seriously. So many times I read what Jesus said and I said, you don't really believe that, do you? Jesus doesn't believe that, I don't think. But he does. And there are things he says here that are meant to stir us to a place of belief beyond what's comfortable. In Luke chapter 17... Sorry, I said 17, I mean 18, Luke 18. It says in verse one, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Okay, so I want you to keep that sentence at the forefront of your mind as we read this parable. Because it's gonna be very easy to read this parable and lose the point. So thankfully, he told us the point at the beginning. That's the, I love those ones, right? He tells us the point at the beginning. So hang on to that. What's the point? Always pray and not lose heart. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, get me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I don't fear God nor respect man, boy this guy's honest, yet because this widow bothers me, (laughs) I will give her legal protection, otherwise by continually coming, she will wear me out. In other words, she just annoyed him into doing something. <laughs> she's a widow, so she's not doing this at home anymore. <laughs> oh, oh. oh. <laughs> we all do it both ways. It goes both ways. You had me right to the end of the message, Pastor. She keeps coming. He says, if I don't give her what she wants, she's going to wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, if I were Jesus' editor, I would have said, cut that one. Just cut it. It's <laughs> not a good parable. Jesus, is bad for your PR if God starts being compared to a corrupt judge. But that was the point, is that he's not corrupt. And if a corrupt judge would do this, how much more would God do it? And will not delay. Now, here's the thing that's difficult. He says God will not delay, but the beginning of the parable was, So I want you to keep praying and not lose heart. And he says in the parable that the widow kept coming back day after day. So I'm I'm bringing out from that that we should not give up just because we didn't see it right away. And yet Jesus says, but God won't delay. Have you considered that, 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 that time period between what you've prayed and what you see is not God delaying? But the process has already begun. The work has already begun. Something's already happened. One of the great examples. And it's not that God couldn't, but God doesn't take shortcuts either. See, if he didn't do it, listen, if that spiritual law and that natural law of sowing and reaping went together, you ever notice that a seed doesn't sprout up the first moment you put it in the ground? There's a process. You don't need to short circuit the process. It's a good process. Now, when it comes time to winning souls, Jesus says there's going to be a day where the guy that's harvesting is going to run right past the guy that's planting. That's how fast it's going to come. But there's other things where I don't think he'd have to tell us over and over again, faith and patience, don't grow weary, don't lose heart. I don't think he'd have to tell you to keep praying, don't lose heart. If there weren't times where you thought it should have happened a month ago and you're still standing. Now, listen, when you keep praying, are you asking God over and over again? I don't think you should. Because I think if you're having to ask him over and over again, you don't believe he heard you the first time. Jesus said, you must believe you've received when you pray. Right? If I believe I've received, I don't keep asking. When I buy something from the store, I don't keep coming back and looking for it. I have it. So the question is not whether, so the prayer might change. The first time you pray, it may be a request that you bring to God. After that, what are you doing? You are thanking him. You're glorifying him. You are, but prayer is conversation. You're letting him work in you. You haven't hung up the phone here. You're continuing this. You're standing in faith. You are believing something that you don't yet see. You're calling it, it is, even though you don't see it. Even though everyone around you says it's not, you say it is. But you don't lose heart. I don't lose heart because God is more faithful than that unrighteous judge. God is a good God. Just like he said, you know, that, that, that wicked father, even a wicked father, wouldn't give his kid a snake if he asked for fish, wouldn't give him a stone if he asked for bread. How much more God, when we ask him for something, wouldn't he, we ask him for the Holy Spirit, wouldn't he be happy to give it to us? He says he's telling them to pray To not lose heart. And then the question he leaves us with. When I come back, will I find faith on the earth? The word faith goes beyond believing. In fact, a lot of times when he says, will I find faith? It's kind of like the statement, I held faith. I kept faith. Which means I'm still here. I didn't let go. When he comes back, is he going to find people that still are believing him? That have hung on to something? When I come back, am I going to find a group of people who didn't let go? Didn't give up? Didn't quit? See, we talked about victory being dependent on your persuasion. I am fully persuaded that what God has promised, he is able and he's faithful to do. We talked about victory coming to a place of permission. What do I have a right to just step out on the water? But now we're talking about victory, hinging. We've talked about faith, and we're talking about patience. Victory, hinging on that patience, that perseverance, that persistence that says, I'm still hanging on. Because he said, you'll reap a harvest if you don't grow weary. He said, you'll inherit the promise if you don't give up. He said, you'll, see, you'll obtain, you'll, you'll lay hold of this if you don't lose heart. That's why throughout this book, and especially in Hebrews, he says, therefore, encourage one another day after day. Encourage the fainthearted. The greatest threat is that we would give up, that we would lose heart. He says, we have strong encouragement to not lose heart. I'll read that to you again in Hebrews. Just because it's so, so pure in its purpose. He says, it is impossible for God to lie We who have taken refuge, we would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. We desire, in verse 11, that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope into the end, so that you would not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. I'll leave you with a few thoughts right here. Is it possible that we could look, I mean, what does it look like when someone loses heart? I mean, maybe your picture of somebody losing heart is somebody's throwing stuff at the wall. Somebody that's like ripping out the toaster and throwing it out the window. Somebody that's walking down the street ranting and raving. But I think more often the picture of someone who's lost heart is not someone who's furious, but someone who's become sluggish. Apathetic. You know, there are Christians, and nobody's pointing fingers here, but there are Christians who have moved back into a place of sluggishness, not because they're lazy at heart, but because they lost hope. And maybe they lost hope because what they expected over here didn't happen the way they thought it happened. Maybe somebody didn't come through like they thought they'd come through. Maybe they prayed for something, didn't see the result they thought at the time they thought or the way they thought, and so they lost some hope, and nobody saw it, so nobody encouraged them. So here they are, and they've not moved to a place where they're standing outside the door handing out pamphlets saying, I'm disappointed, I'm disappointed. No, they keep showing up. Maybe, maybe they don't show up anymore. Maybe they show up every now and then, but they haven't gone out and said, I'm a Satanist. They still would profess they're a Christian. They still profess they love Jesus, and yet there's nothing coming out of their life anymore. They just lost hope. And I want to tell you that those people are not beyond redemption. Because every one of us has been that person at some point. Maybe you haven't gone all the way, but there are times we've been tempted or we have lost heart. And I want to be, if I could be nothing else in the body of Christ, I want to be the guy that says something that's going to stir something back up in you so you could be encouraged. And I think everybody in the room today has that ability. You know, there are people that we would say have a gift of encouragement, but I would say every believer has a responsibility to encourage. And in fact, if you have the Holy Spirit inside you, because who gives the gifts? Where do the gifts come from? They are workings of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the New Testament doesn't say, I'm going to talk to you about spiritual gifts. He says, I'm going to talk to you about spiritual things, spirituals. And if I were to tell you honestly, well, they have a gift of encouragement, but I don't. Maybe they've just worked that muscle more than you have. Because every one of us has the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of encouragement. And he doesn't say in the Bible, those of you with a gift of encouragement, encourage the faint hearted. He looks around the room, points at everybody and says, encourage one another. Yeah, and we pass the ball off Well, there's sister Tina, there's a gift of encouragement. Well, you know, this person has a gift of encouragement. You have a gift of encouragement. And If there's nobody around you to encourage you, be like David and encourage yourself in the Lord. And once you've encouraged yourself, find somebody else. As Jesus said, Peter, I've been praying for you that your faith would not fail not. But when you turn, turn around and encourage your brothers. Oh, man, I I like to find the people that just freshly got on fire again. The people that got stirred up again. The people that have hope back in their eyes. I like to find them the week they got hope back in their eyes. Because those people are the ones that are most passionately finding people that need encouragement. Because they know what it's like. And they're not happy with anybody being back in that place. I know we've been all over the place today, but I just want to tell you, this is what we're talking about today. There are conditions to harvest. And the main condition is that you don't grow weary in doing good. There are conditions to obtaining the promises of God. And the main condition is that you don't give up. You need faith and you need patience. Patience means you just keep going. You keep standing, you keep fighting, you keep hanging on. Hanging on sounds wimpy. It sounds like that cat that's like, gonna hang in there. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that cat. God bless that little kitten. It's got a lot of office workers out of their cubicles with some pep in their step. But I want you to picture hanging on to you grabbing onto that rope of hope that enters into the throne of God. And I want you to consider that, yes, it anchors my soul in the sense that when my, brain, when my mind wants to run away with itself and say, ah, I don't see it, and you start going into panic mode, hope anchors me. It keeps me steadfast. But I want to propose to you that perhaps it's also an anchor that pulls you. Not just an anchor that keeps you in the same place, but an anchor that is ever pulling me into the throne of God, ever pulling me closer to God. Faith I'm hanging on to what he said. Hope, I'm hanging on to who he is. I know he will not fail me. You know somebody who has hope by their steadfastness. By the fact that they're still believing what they believed five years ago, 10 years ago, except they believe it more. That's how you know someone who has hope. Fear, fear, produce a shot of adrenaline. You're afraid of God. You're afraid to go to hell if you don't do it. You will serve God for five good minutes. But faith and hope will produce an endurance in you that will last. Amen. Stand with me. Let's pray.